Fredology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Someone recently asked me about my role in the e-commerce fraud industry, and <laughs> I don't know, it's always been hard for me to explain, but I grasped onto this analogy that I feel like in some ways I'm the meteorologist or the weather reporter especially when I'm providing keynotes to various membership organizations or events around fraud and loss prevention and uh, security. I feel like because of my position and just how lucky I am that so many people trust me and how many conversations I have on a regular basis with a lot of the big e-commerce companies about new things they're seeing and new challenges they're experiencing and then also new solutions that they've found or that have been created, I tend to learn like this 10,000 foot view of what's going on in the industry. And I've been able to provide that in a lot of different ways. And I really enjoy that. I think I can take, okay, I'm starting to see a pattern here where three or four or five people are saying they're seeing this thing. And that's how I got kind of looped into refund fraud last year, because that was the way it happened. I'm talking about this because I feel like as the unofficial meteorologist for e-commerce fraud prevention, and I know I'm now going to get jokes about this on LinkedIn, but that's fine. There's another trend I'm seeing, and I think the best place for me to share it is on this podcast. So there was a recent headline that kind of just solidified to me that I'm worried that this is where we're headed. And that is that Mint Mobile had a data breach. So the headline said Mint Mobile data breach allows hackers to port phone numbers. I don't know how big Mint Mobile is. I know that they're a reseller for T-Mobile. I have done a sufficient amount of Googling to try to figure that out and don't think they're huge, but they may be in a different geographical area than I am. Don't think that I'm as worried about merchants having, you know, the phone ported on Mint Mobile specifically as I am what this is signaling. Just to kind of give a little bit more information on this headline, and I'll put the link in the show. Some of the account information, including names, email addresses, phone numbers, passwords, and account numbers, the billing amounts, subscription features, their physical address, their international call logs, pretty much like everything in the account history was exposed to these bad actors. And we traditionally call them hackers. This is more or less a data breach, but the data that they got allowed them to then call in and port the phone numbers to a different phone carrier. And this is where it starts to impact e-commerce companies as well as banks and financial institutions. And to be clear, banks and financial institutions have been dealing with this for a really long time, but now they're 
getting better at it. So now it's coming over to us. And that is that a lot of the more secure things in people's lives on the internet require multi-factor authentication. It used to be called two-factor authentication. Now we consider it multi-factor. It can be via SMS or via email. And we've been seeing this for a while. And this is something that Ellie Dominance talked about, I don't know, several podcasts ago when I had him on. This is something that Q6 has been seeing where criminals are selling whole email addresses and access to email addresses so that fraudsters can get around multi-factor authentication. If they're committing account takeover on an account with a high value amount, whether it's for a credit card or a banking institution or a financial institution or a merchant that has high dollar items. It can be all kinds of things when they have access to your email and that you know provider or that company notices that you're dialing in from a new device or new IP or you know anything, they may say, okay, well, we sent you a security password to your email. Well, if they have access to your email account, it's no longer a method of security. So that's been going on for a while. And phone porting has been too. And if you're not familiar, if you've ever switched a phone carrier, and I only know this from the US, but I think it's similar internationally. If you've ever switched a phone carrier from you know one to the other, you'll call your you know previous provider and say, hey, I'm canceling my account with you. And I want it switched over to this other carrier. And chances are they'll ask you a few security questions and then they'll do it. And I know from talking to several phone carriers that they're required by um, the U.S. government to do that instantly or very quickly. And it may not be the U.S. government. Maybe it's the FCC. I'm probably getting that part wrong. But there's something that requires them to have to do it instantly. So there's not a lot of checks that they can do. I know that they do their very best, but because they can't implement like a two hour hold or anything, I mean, anyone not having phone access on their phone for two hours could be a real impact. They all have this agreement with each other that they'll do it instantly. When fraudsters are able to commit phone porting and have your phone number ported to another carrier, that means that they now have full control of your phone number and your phone. They're not just spoofing your phone number to call into a call center and say, oh, I'm that person. They get the text messages that come in from your bank to say, hey, here's the six digit number that you need to put in. Uh, if you shop on any Shopify websites, this is very common multi-factor authentication. They'll send an SMS and uh, you just input it into the website. At least it happens to me all the time. I don't know, maybe I'm suspicious to Shopify, but I think they've implemented this across the board in a lot of cases. It's a form of security, but it's one that e-commerce merchants are relying on other parties to kind of keep up their end of the bargain or to also stay secure. It's outside of the e-commerce company's control of who has control of the phone of the person whose account it originally is. So they can only send the SMS to the number that they have. They have no way of knowing if that's the customer or if a fraudster just ported it over to another provider for a short period of time in the middle of the night, hoping that the person whose account number it is didn't notice that they don't have phone service how many of us actually use our phone for phone service anyway? I mean, quite a few during the week, but on the weekends, I pretty much just use it on the web. You're relying on other entities. And I am aware of um, at least one provider who does have a fairly new product that has the intel to know when a phone was recently ported, not just if, but when, and it'll tell you if it was that same day, which is great, but not everyone can update their providers or all the other things. But 
This is something that's been happening for years, especially on high dollar value items. But here's where the meteorologist part comes in, is that I'm really concerned that there's a, an attack on our supply chain. So I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent there, but I wanted to set that level of information before going further. So back to kind of being the meteorologist, this is where I'm starting to get worried, is that as fraudsters and cyber criminals start to work together or really are kind of blending into the same people, it's advantageous for some of them, especially for the companies that have the biggest treasure chests, so to speak, the high value items or the relationships with customers or these really high value accounts with large loyalty accounts or anything else like that. They're starting to realize, okay, we can't go to our intended target because they have built up Fort Knox with all of their various systems and technology and knowledge. So if we go in through their front door, or if we commit ATO on their account, and then they require MFA, like multi-factor authentication, we're not going to be able to get through. But if we go through a carrier, if we breach a carrier and we find out this information, or if we find or can purchase this information about this person where we know everything about them that could possibly be on their security questions. Maybe 10 years ago, they wrote, filled out a Facebook quiz about the first name of their pet and the first elementary school they went to and their second cousin's dog's name. I don't know, just all the security questions. Maybe they can do it for you. I mean, there's so many different files being built where it's like patchwork of all different data breaches to create full data storage on consumers and it's in the bad guys hands. I mean, we've got them for the good guys, but we also kind of have them publicly available too. But then there are all these ones with all the passwords and all the usernames and they can start to see patterns. Maybe this person, every time they have to reset their password every four months and they do summer 21 and then spring 21 and winter. Okay. Well now we can guess that their next password is going to be fall 21 or they just use the same password no matter what. What I'm trying to say is, you know, we need to start being concerned about the providers that we use, but also the providers that we don't use. And that's kind of terrifying because that's really out of our control. But we're seeing this on the cybersecurity side too, where supply chains are being attacked. We've seen it with the um, Kaysera. Am I, say, I don't know if I'm saying that, but the Kaysera or Kaysera, I've heard it said both ways, attack impacted this technology company that provides technology to thousands of uh, other companies. We saw it with solar winds that actually ended up impacting multiple departments in the U.S. government. So we're seeing that happen in the cyberspace. And I just really want to make it clear that I think we're also starting to see it in the fraud space too. Phone porting has been happening for a while. Obviously, email compromise has been happening for a while. But now targeting these companies like this mobile carrier is a little bit new. And there's other things too that I've kind of started to see, and I'm going to have to keep them a little bit anonymous, but these are similar around the same vein. And that's why I thought that this makes sense to talk about it. It really is impacting the monetization of stolen data, which is really what the fraud department looks at. And I've seen supply chain attacks impact the front lines of fraud prevention before. I'm going to make these kind of anonymous because I have to. So these are just examples. The who doesn't matter as much as the what. I would li not like to be subject to water torture on anything that I know. So here's one example. Several years ago, a fraud prevention service provider that provided, 
some of it's case management, but like core fraud prevention technology. And they're not actually round anymore, but they are in a different form. They suffered a DDoS attack and it allowed fraudsters to target their clients all at the same time. And hundreds of fraudulent orders were essentially auto approved because the fraud checks were bypassed. There was something in the merchant systems that allowed it to say, okay, if we can't call out to via API to our fraud provider, we're just going to auto pass it for customer service purposes. And it was really a coordinated attack. And it was really crazy. I was fortunate enough to be in a position where they were all coming to me to kind of report it at the time. But at the same time that this fraud provider had the CDOS attack, there were several of their highest value clients that had a lot of orders pushed through. Now, fortunately, they were able to look at the timestamp and cancel them before the items went out. But that was when I, I got really freaked out and was like, oh my gosh, like this is a way that that could be done. I haven't heard of it since. It could be because I'm not in the same position that I was then, but that is just something to be aware of. And I also know, and I have to say, especially for the providers that are listening to this and that are like, Carice, we're not all bad and we're not all really good at our security. I know that a lot of the providers are. And this, I think, was an edge case. I don't think this is, I haven't heard of it and I think I would have again, but I just think these are examples where when it comes to supply chain, we may not be able to guess where in the supply chain they're going to hit, but these are just examples of how I've seen it before. Other fraudsters have found vulnerabilities and weaknesses in specific fraud systems. And I've talked about this before, I think both on this podcast, as well as my previous one. And they've really set out to target the fraud company's clients because they've figured out a vulnerability with fraud company A. And this isn't all of them, but there's a couple of them that fraudsters have found out like specific vulnerabilities. Okay, if merchants use these guys, we can do this and we can bypass it this way and we can look legit this way. Another example of it is whitelist fraud with previous good orders. I've talked about that before. It's a similar but different example, but there are a few that, and these are very organized crime rings. These are not the one-off fraudsters, but those guys are almost more dangerous and they're able to scale them very quickly. A lot of people ask, well, how would anyone know what fraud provider we use? Like that's top secret. Well, <laughs> thanks to the last couple of years with privacy guidelines and mandates, which I am all for, by the way, like 100%, I think there absolutely needs to be more privacy guidelines in our you know, ecosystem and in e-commerce. I think tech has moved far faster than any other regulations, especially in the U.S., and I think GDPR is great in theory, and I think it has some really good components of it. But one that I think is dangerous, and I've seen it backfire, is that e-commerce companies is part of GDPR, as well as I think CCPV, which is the California Consumer Protection. Is it CCPA? They keep changing that last letter. But anyway, it requires companies that store or share their consumer data to disclose which companies they're sharing their customer data with. Well, where you're sharing your customer data with your fraud providers. So more than likely it's in your terms and conditions now. It used to be that in order to figure out which uh, merchants used what fraud provider, they'd have to go out to the fraud provider websites and see their client lists. And that happened all the time. I've heard that from and current fraudsters and kind of keeping, you know, one eye on that world. But now they can just go to your terms and conditions and see who you're using. I do know of at least one attack vector that has been doing that over the last year or so. And they've 
found that very advantageous. Another one that's fairly recent, and I'm not 100% sure what's going on, but again, this is anonymous. So I think, again, this is just used as an example, but I've heard from multiple large companies that they're seeing a specific bin, which is the bank identifier number, the first six digits of the card, continually have fraud. And this has been like a year where they felt like, oh, we think there was like some kind of data compromise at this bin. I started to hear that from a few merchants. Then it seems like even when those cards are reissued, they're compromised again. And I think the concern is that this specific bin may have some kind of an algorithm. I hope it's not the mod 10 because as Alexander Hall talked about on um, previous podcast episodes that that can really be messed with. He calls it math as a payment method. Most bins don't use mod 10 now. And I haven't been able to do a lot of research on this one to understand, but it feels like the actual math equation to figure out and configure the next card number that's going to be reissued after the first one or the second one or the third one is shut down, something is wrong there. And I wouldn't say that lightly, but there's great researchers and data people at these large companies, as well as I've been you know, privy to some of their logic and what they're looking at and some of their metrics. It's pretty clear that there's obvious fraud on that bin, unfortunately, because card not present companies bear the liability, the financial liability. That's something that these merchants are a little frustrated with. So these are all just examples of what I'm starting to see and call supply chain. I don't think it's supply chain fraud. It's supply chain vulnerabilities. I'd never like to provide problems without solutions, but I think that really the biggest solution is to be aware that this can happen. As much as you can, don't rely on outside networks, outside email, email addresses or inboxes, the security of that the security that your consumer is using to store their password or reuse, et cetera, that's out of your control. The security that the phone company is providing to allow fraudsters access to be able to port over the phone so that they can pass the SMS. I mean, obviously those things do incur a considerable amount of effort. So often these are, you know, primarily for companies that have keys to the kingdom, so to speak. They might be online challenger banks. They might be cryptocurrency or online gambling or large tickets, ticket items, travel. And there's so many different options. I think it's something to be aware of. And if you start to see any patterns or commonalities that may be points of compromise outside of your system, this may be an example of that. As the unofficial meteorologist for e-commerce fraud, this was my uh, weather report, <laughs> quote unquote. What's important to know, and I know a lot of people listen to this podcast because they want to know what they don't know and what to think about. I really don't like to bring doom and gloom. I don't like to, if we're really going to exhaust this metaphor or this analogy, I don't like to always be saying that there's a hurricane on the horizon, but at the same time, it, it gives you the ability to board up your windows or be on the lookout and you know, know that this is something that could happen. And that's why I do it. Switching gears a tiny bit, issues that merchants have recently reported are really around, I mean, if I'm looking for a theme in a lot of the things that have been reported to me recently or that have been discussed on my collaboration calls recently that I host is around fraud and revenue losses as well as brand reputation losses to e-com companies that don't involve chargebacks. 
And this is something that I feel like I've been saying for a while, but I'm just going to continue to keep saying it because I feel like more and more people need to hear it. And that is if you are a online fraud team that is only measuring your success by the dollar and the count of your chargebacks, you are probably missing a really large chunk of revenue that's being stolen from your company. There are a lot of ways that have always kind of been like loopholes or things that some people have taken advantage of here or there, like stacking coupons or whatever. But especially over the last year due to COVID and all that it brought our way between e-commerce skyrocketing in volume and shipping partners being overwhelmed and just all the different things, it's created more problems that are causing lost revenue for e-commerce companies. And honestly, besides COVID, it's also you know really heating up because we've gotten really good at identifying carding collectively as a group. There are some companies that are better than it than others, and some companies that are being attacked and exploited more than others. I mean, it's really a spectrum, but collectively as a industry in partnership with a lot of the solution providers and third-party providers that have come up over the years, we've gotten good at identifying when someone is using a credit card that isn't theirs, either via behavior or data verification, et cetera. But that's not going to make them go get a regular job. They're finding loopholes. And that's why your company is incurring revenue losses that you may not even be aware of because they're hiding in other departments or those other departments don't really know that these are fraud tactics. I've talked a ton about refund fraud and actually I hope, I mean, I'm recording this a few days early, but I hope that next week I can announce that I was featured in a very, very large U.S. national newspaper about refund fraud I'm super excited to have a reporter from that publication reach out to me after watching a presentation that I did for a conference recently, and I was able to get them in touch with a couple of merchants and uh, one that was able to talk on the record and other industry experts, and I've been answering questions from the last few weeks and really been enjoying helping them understand this problem and having it get a little bit more sunlight, so to speak, because that phrase that sunlight is the best disinfectant, but I do think it's important for people to know all the way down from consumers who are seeing advertisements about refund fraud and they see an opportunity to get a deal and don't think they're doing anything wrong all the way to carriers and putting pressure on them and saying, Hey, we need you to work with the e-commerce companies because they're kind of at your mercy. And if you don't have the ability to investigate all of these, how can we work together to try to improve this ecosystem because there's obviously a huge gap and there's a lot of money being lost. I've talked a lot about this problem and I am actually going to be offering a boot camp pretty soon. I believe it's going to be four to six hours cumulatively over a few days, over a few weeks. So like a couple different sessions for a group of e-commerce merchants, just to provide a deep dive of information on what refunding fraud is, what it looks like to your company, the different tactics that are being used, the most regular ones, as well as unique ones. And I'll even provide a analysis for each company that's in the group to tell them kind of what some of the refunder groups are saying about them, what their vulnerabilities are, what limits, you know, these refunders are promising. And then going into a lot of different ways that you can either discourage the behavior or recover the revenue. I've been studying this for over a year and a half, both 
in-depth on the merchant side, as well as on the refunder side. Get to see in some of these chat groups when they're like, oh my gosh, this retailer is doing X now, so we need to not hit them anymore. And I'm seeing what works and how else they hit them after that, what the escalation process is. Anyways, not really meant as a plug just yet because I don't have dates for it. But if you are interested in this for you or your team, you can definitely reach out to me via LinkedIn or email. I'm setting those up in the next two weeks. I think this will be a great way and an affordable way for e-commerce companies to be able to learn about this rather than hiring me for a one-on-one job, which I know is just a little cost prohibitive sometimes. But if I'm able to teach everyone in a group and answer lots of questions on the spot, then that's a good use of all of our time. And there will be a money back guarantee. So if you don't think you learned (laughs) as much as I've promised, um, I would be surprised about that. If anyone see me speak at a conference, I really try to go above and beyond to provide a lot of information. And that's when people aren't paying me. I'm big on really providing a lot of content and I've given it a lot of thought and feel like this is a need. But anyway, beyond refunding fraud, there's promo code abuse. And that's really been picking up in the last several months. I mean, we've had promo code abuse since like the beginning of coupons and promo codes on the internet, but now it's becoming fraud as a service. It's I'm putting it under the umbrella of fraud as a service, just like refund fraud. You can now hire people to give you hundreds of unique codes to stack up for specific uh, department stores, for example. A lot of them are unique codes that were given for loyalty, for money spent. And a lot of times they're draining customers' accounts through account takeover. So they're not actually making a purchase, so there's no chargeback but they're taking whatever rewards promo codes they have. Maybe they have $10 stored up or maybe they have 30. For instance, a couple of weeks ago, I saw that there was one retailer that Fraudster was advertising $1,000 in $10 promo codes for $200 in Bitcoin. And I took a screenshot and sent it to that retailer because I'm so lucky that I know so many. And just said, hey, heads up, I've been seeing your name pop up on the site and fraudster group more or less and just didn't know if you guys were looking at this and they did say they had started to see some orders using the loyalty promo codes but those accounts had never had any history of purchase it was a red flag to them but they weren't entirely sure what was going on so i was able to say it's looking like because it's in bulk and because they're unique codes that they're doing this via ato this is very different than like retail me not or anything like that these are unique codes. And a lot of them are allowed to be stacked for customer you know, satisfaction. There's a retailer that I shop at fairly often. It's a you know, nice department store and I get redemption. And there's a few of them. There's, I do it at the bulk food store that we go often to, where you get like a dividend or you get a note or whatever they call it. Well, now instead of being mailed to your house, a lot of them are just being loaded up onto your online account. And there are groups of fraudsters offering this as a service where they're draining all of these and then they're putting it out. So now you've got two problems. One, you've got consumers that purchase or shady people, I guess, that purchase these notes or redemption vouchers, whatever, and they're using them on your site. So they're basically stealing from you. They paid a fraudster for it, but you're giving them the items for free. Then you've got this customer that is a loyal customer that shops with you enough to be getting these points or these notes or whatever your company calls them. And they go to use them in their account and they're gone. 
So it's similar to the triangulation that Holly explained on our last episode with event ticketing, where you've now got two entities, like, and you're kind of stuck in the middle because chances are you're going to want to replenish those promo codes that your customer lost, but now you're also out the money for the promo codes originally that were used by someone else. So that is a really good example of revenue losses that are impacting your company that aren't ever going to result in a chargeback. There are definitely some things you can do. I mean, just using the example of the retailer I just mentioned, looking for patterns like, huh, okay, well, let's, uh, you know, if you have a rules-based system or a hybrid of machine learning and rules-based, maybe you could set some policies. It's not necessarily a fraud you know, rule, but some kind of policy rule where you're looking for orders that are using these promo codes. You could also look at making business decisions with other entities within your company to say, should we allow these to be stacked? There's another situation where a few merchants have been noticing that their what they call CSATs, customer satisfaction vouchers, are being taken advantage of. They are concerned about internal vulnerabilities there. And I do know that fraudsters in these chat rooms that I monitor are often saying, hey, I'm looking for someone that works in the call center of blah, or I'm looking for a flight attendant that works for this airline carrier or whatever. That definitely does happen. And unfortunately, it's a downside of some of these roles not paying a lot. They could be ripe for someone to come along and say, hey, I'll give you 50 bucks for whatever, to look the other way or to issue more customer satisfaction vouchers than you're supposed to or whatever it is. So they're looking at that, but they're definitely also looking at, well, should we allow them? A lot of these customer satisfaction vouchers are worth quite a bit of money. Should we allow them to be able to stack them with a different one that's also a customer satisfaction? How often do we have people that are using two of those at the same time? Maybe we can allow them to use a customer satisfaction promo and a loyalty promo and a sale promo, but not multiple of the same. It's always going to be a balance with these business decisions that you have to make. But this is a really good opportunity for you to bring other departments in and have a meeting and just say, hey, this is something that we're becoming aware of, that this could be happening. And even though it isn't tied to chargebacks, we really wanted to bring it to your attention and would love to be able to lend some of our expertise on the fraud side to help you stop this abuse or this leakage or whatever you know, your company calls it. It could be a good way for you to really step up and, and provide more visibility within your company without being preachy, without saying, well, da, 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 this is what you need to do. No, just like bringing it to their attention. And then if they ask you for advice, or you could maybe say, hey, I'd love to share with you what we're thinking, but I know there's other factors that have to be this determined. Let's pull some data on how often good customers do this behavior before we limit it, et cetera. This is more around policies, but again, to me, I think fraud prevention should really be rebranded to revenue protection. I've said that many times, but I almost think I should just start saying it. Revenue protection is just so much more encompassing than just fraud prevention or chargeback prevention. And all of these ways, you know, are ways that your company is losing, you're giving something away for free, essentially. It may not have the same three to one loss ratio that chargebacks do, but it at least has a two to one. You may not have extra fees on top, but you're still losing a lot of money and that's your bonus money. That's you know, money that can be put back into the business. If you're losing that money, maybe you're increasing your prices. Like there's so many different impacts to it. I think that looking at the account takeovers as a point 
too, of compromise and being able to put something up front at the top of your funnel. A lot of the merchants I've been talking to lately have been working towards moving from a post-authorization model to a pre-authorization model for fraud, or at least putting some kind of, whether it is behavioral biometrics or device logic, which really need to look at which companies you're using for that and which ones are innovating because fraudsters are definitely finding ways to exploit some device information. But looking at those systems at the funnel and working with your cybersecurity team, because they may also be trying to you know, prevent account takeovers, but they're doing it from a different angle and for a different reason. It a lot of times you can work together and share the budget or share the responsibility, but that is equally as important to your bottom line as it is to protecting data in your company, which is your you know, cybersecurity department's directive. These are all just things that I really wanted to make sure everybody's thinking about. CMP fraud can no longer solely be focused on preventing chargebacks. We've gotten good at that. That doesn't mean that we sit back and we relax and we say, okay, well, no one's doing carding anymore. Oh no, there's still plenty of people doing carding, but a lot of these message boards that I'm monitoring are saying carding is dead or you can't card that merchant, but you can definitely refund them. Or you can't card that merchant, but you can definitely hit them with promo code abuse. Or you can't card that merchant, but you can go to this third-party payment provider that they use and you can get in that way. I talked about on the BNPL episode. It's been really helpful for me to not just work with the merchants, but to kind of have at least one eye on what some of the fraudsters are saying. I'm not monitoring all of them. There is at least one very excellent company. I mean, it's Q6 Cyber. I've talked with the CEO on this podcast before, and I've partnered with them before that are just really, really good at human intel and studying those things and providing that information to you, both in a data file, as well as in the ways that providing and sharing and presentations and information on how you're being attacked or what the chatter is, so to speak, that is not my area of expertise, but I do keep an eye on it because it really does help inform the other side of what I'm hearing. I hear merchants say, hey, we're having this problem or that problem. And I can go, oh yeah, well, this is what they're saying on the other side. That just helps make me a better Weather forecaster, I am really, really exceeding this analogy. I apologize. I just really wanted to provide all of those things to, as things to think about, especially as you're starting to think about the holidays. It's hard to believe because it's scorching hot in most places now on the earth. But I know a lot of retailers, especially are considering the holidays. And I think it's important also in the next couple months, you're going to start thinking about your budget and your project plans for next year. And sometimes that's detrimental because fraud changes on a dime and you need to be able to adapt. So it's still really good to know what might be coming you know, down the line. If you're not seeing this now, you might. Like I said, depending on what you have and how valuable your items are, as well as how valuable your customer accounts are too cyber criminals. One more thing about all of this is it's critical to work with other departments in your company. And I've heard recently from a few fraud fighters that are frustrated that they try to work with other departments and they don't feel like it's going well or that they can't get them to care as much. And I'm going to have some pretty awesome guests talking about that in the next few weeks. 
I've been trying to secure two specific people for the last several weeks. And it is really hard to have all three of us have the same available time on our calendar, but we're working on it. But it is really important to work with customer service. Ask what they're seeing and how you can help them. Create cross-functional fraud task forces. This is something I've been able to help a few clients do, and it's been really, really helpful. Once you bring in other departments in a way where you're asking for their help and you want them to be involved and you're not telling them what to do or what they should be doing or scolding them or anything, a lot of times these can work really well because once they know what your your directive is and what you're looking at and how you're thinking about things and just some of the examples of what fraud you see or how you see the company taken advantage of, a lot of times leaders in these other cross-functional teams will get really excited about helping too. And I've seen that happen with customer service, with info security, with legal, with PR and communications in various ways. It's also a good idea to review all your policies and procedures. I mean, one example is obviously promo code stacking. Are we going to allow that? How are we going to better secure these accounts? Because they now have items of value in them that cyber criminals are just pillaging essentially. And they're just you know, stealing from your customers. And then now you have unhappy customers. This is also a brand issue. So you can bring in communications. A lot of times, the more eyes you have on this from different perspectives, the more buy-in you're going to have and the more support you're going to have when something goes up to senior leadership or executives to approve it, because they're going to know that you talk to everyone else and that everyone else cares about this too in an equal way. Um, these are conversations I have led with several of my clients with various departments, and it's been really productive, even with some of the trickiest cross-functional team members. You know, when we can kind of lower things down and say, hey, we really want to work with you and here's why, because you know so much about blah, blah, blah. And whatever we need to do for that specific person and that specific team to want to work together, the ends always justify the means. Offer training to customer service and an escalation channel for fraud. Report to executives fairly regularly on issues and potential solutions. And then I just think it's always important, and I think I mentioned it earlier in the episode when we talked about other things, but we focus so much on this fraud prevention piece, but that's why I think revenue protection sounds better because we do need to protect our revenue, but we also need to remember that the good guys are the ones that pay your paychecks. You never want to hinder the good guys just because you're you're trying to prevent the bad guys. It was something I had to remind my team early on when I led my own team was that Yes, a lot of the orders that we're looking at are fraudulent. And so it's very easy to think that the majority of orders are fraudulent. Chances are you're only looking at one to 3% of your orders. That 97% is good and you want that and you don't want to hinder them. It seems like an impossible balance, but honestly, I have seen so many people do this so well in various companies that I've been able to pick up tips and tricks from some of them. And I, it is possible. And I think that's something to you know aspire to, to not just work in a silo because the fraudsters love when you work in a silo. That's why they're attacking your promo codes because it's outside of the fraud team. That's why they're attacking your refund process because it's outside of the fraud team and it's not something that anyone can predict at a transaction level. With that, I am going to wrap up this episode but I, as always, appreciate you spending time and listening to the Fraudology podcast. I would love it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you can. It helps others discover it. And I look forward to speaking with you next week.
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.